Once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. Welcome back to the Sing Your War Song podcast. My name is Mikey. I am your fellow Christian layman, your common theologian, your regular dude. Humbly coming at this conversation with you today, this new episode on the topic that really drove this podcast concept to begin with, and that is the topic of worldview, understanding life through the aspects of worldview and what defines that presuppositional thinking, the basic assumptions that undergird our belief system, the why behind the what, and ultimately understanding why we fight. Logically bringing that thought process all the way back to its foundations. That is worldview thinking, and it's the way We must see the world. It's the lens through which we must understand life. It's something that's really impacted me over the past few years, really taught me. I believe the Lord has led me and grown me through this thinking. Because in essence, biblical thinking is worldview thinking through the lens of the biblical Christian worldview and the presuppositions that undergird that worldview. Because as Christians, we can logically speak about the whys behind the what's of our beliefs. And we view the world around us today, and the current paradigm rejects the very idea of a systematic thought process. And so what we have is this postmodern chaos where everything is governed by subjective feeling and emotion. And we are constantly trying to untether ourselves from objective reality when that is simply impossible. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to this podcast, which is going to start a series really discussing what worldview is, why we need it. And as we progress discussing specifically the biblical Christian worldview, it is how It is the why behind the what of my past few podcasts. Those were episodes I just wanted to get out there. I was fired up about certain topics. But I try to convey and articulate those subjects through presuppositional thinking, through the lens of worldview, so that we better understand it in its entirety according to God's word and thus objective reality. That being said, We're going to get into it. We're going to dive into it. And hopefully by the end of this, if you are a man or woman of the faith, it has made you stronger in the faith. It has encouraged you. It has uh, maybe given you some things to think about and strengthen you in your ability to articulate your faith and your position as a Christian. And if you're not, maybe this has at least caused you to ask some questions about your belief system, whatever that is. What are the whys behind the what's of your belief system? Can you articulate your morality, your virtue, what is truth, what is what is good, what is beautiful, all the way back to the assumptions that drive that what? So that being said, 
we are going to get into this bad boy. The title of this episode is Why We Fight. From Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? But we must notice that there is a second result of modern man's loss of meaning and values, which is more ominous and which many people do not see. This second result is that the elite will exist. Society cannot stand chaos. Some group or person will fill the vacuum. An elite will offer us arbitrary absolutes, and who will stand in its way? Will the silent majority, which at one time we heard so much about, help? The so-called silent majority was and is divided into a minority and a majority. The minority are either Christians who have a real basis for values, or those who at least have a memory of the days when the values are real. The majority are left with only their two poor values of personal peace and affluence. With such values, will men stand for their liberties? Will they not give up their liberties step by step, inch by inch, as long as their own personal peace and prosperity is sustained and not challenged, and as long as the goods are delivered? The lifestyles of the young and the old generations are different. There are tensions between long hair and short, drugs and non-drugs, whatever are the outward distinctions of the moment. But they support each other sociologically, for both embrace the values of personal peace and affluence. Much of the church is no help either, because for so long a large section of the church has only been teaching a relativistic humanism using religious terminology. I believe the majority and silent majority, young and old, will sustain the loss of liberties without raising their voices as long as their own lifestyles are not threatened. And since personal peace and affluence are so often the values that count with the majority, politicians know that to be elected they must promise these things. Politics has largely become not a matter of ideals. Increasingly, men and women are not stirred by the values of liberty and truth but of supplying a, cons a constituency with a frosting of personal peace and affluence. They know their voices will not be raised as long as people have these things, or at least an illusion of them. End quote. Paul edifies the church of Ephesus with these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friends, we are waging the good warfare as God's redeemed, and we know ultimately it is a battle of the unseen things. The Lord is putting all of his enemies under his feet. He is fulfilling his will decreed in the timeless realm of eternity along the historical pathway of time and space. 
He wages war against the darkness of rebellion that was ultimately instituted by the enemy we know as Satan. But we know that reality is a place where the spiritual and unseen things are expressed in the physical realm. God, who is spirit, formed from nothing all matter. The unseen thoughts of our minds are connected to a physical reality as we act them out through word and deed. We express in the physical realm the unseen concepts of love and hate, right and wrong. So too we see that human institutions are governed by people. People that are ultimately living under the subjugation of darkness or the liberty of Christ. The cosmic unseen powers of light and dark are expressed, played out through the elect and the reprobate, and thus the institutions that they govern. The battle of good and evil is a battle of ideas, a battle of worldviews. And so we know that the tyrant is the disciple of Satan, for Satan is the chief tyrant. And what tyrants love are a subjugated people. And we know that those who carry within them no sense of conviction, no principled view of the world are easy to subjugate and control. This is what Francis Schaeffer speaks of when he says that the current governing paradigm of our Western society is driven by the two poor values of personal peace and affluence. When the goal of the people is personal comfort, entertainment, wealth, and their own subjective definition of happiness, they are weak. They are ultimately dependent upon the institutions that will guarantee and provide the things that will supposedly satisfy these poor values. This produces a people that lack personal responsibility, values that transcend the self and seek something higher, a people that shirk at any sense of adversity and will comply with whatever policy decision that will promise comfort and security. Thus, the dependent population that lives for these things will joyfully shackle themselves with the chains that will promise these things, no matter how heavy the burden is. So the tyrant prospers, for he holds to a steadfast conviction to his worldview, his godless, satanic religion that seeks to subjugate the weak and prop up an elite class shrouded in darkness. How did we come to this place of postmodern madness? How did we come to a place where our culture is driven by such a shallow view of life? It is because the prevailing worldviews of the last couple centuries have been governed by godless presuppositions. We have walked further and further away from the God of truth that has ordered our existence, and therefore we have been driven from understanding the true nature of our existence. We have been driven so far away from God that we don't even feel it necessary to have a a systematic view of our existence to begin with. This is what we would define as a worldview. So this is the beginning of a series where I will humbly attempt, by God's grace, to articulate the biblical Christian worldview. But first, in this episode, we must establish in this nihilistic nature of our current culture that it's important to even define what a worldview is and argue why it's necessary. First, we must understand that whether we realize it or not, 
Whether we want to admit it or not, we all operate from what are called presuppositions. And I ask for your patience and forgiveness because I'm going to say this word presupposition at least 50 times, but it is so necessary. I will define it going forward here, but please be patient with me. But it's so, it's such an important word in our, in our thinking, in our process of thinking that it's going to be said a lot here when we talk about worldview. But Glenn Martin quotes a Dr. Bernard Ram in Martin's work, Prevailing Worldviews of Western Society Since 1500. Quote, All thinking is from presuppositions. There can be no thinking without presuppositions. And therefore, all respectable thinking is from sound presuppositions. Any quote-unquote neutrality in science, philosophy, or religion is fictional. The only respectable procedure is to admit that one thinks from presuppositions and to choose those presuppositions in a responsible manner. Unquote. Martin himself begins his work by introducing presuppositions, what they are, and why they are essential. Quote, I presuppose, or hold as a basic assumption, that ideas have consequences, that thoughts produce actions. As a man thinketh, so is he. And so ultimately will he act. It is, of course, more fashionable today, given the influence of environmental determinism, to assume that consequences result in ideas. Additionally, I presuppose that we can and should know not only what we believe, but also why we believe it. And that we cannot really know what we believe and why without simultaneously knowing what we do not believe and why, for nothing is ultimately knowable in a vacuum. Unquote. Martin's definition is the simplest way to articulate what a presupposition is. That is a basic assumption. It is a basic assumption. It is the why behind the what, the thing that is supposed before another is articulated. It is a bias. It is the foundation of our thinking that causes us to see what we see and believe what we believe. As Ram said, neutrality is a fallacy. We all have biases. Right is bias against wrong. Love, bias against hate. Light, bias against darkness. Truth, bias against untruth. To engage in science, philosophy, ethical debate, or anything else of importance or substance from a so-called position of neutrality is simply false. Show me a man that claims to be utterly neutral and I will show you a shapeless noodle with no backbone, a man without conviction or belief. He is a mess with no founding that is easily persuaded from his position of neutrality to be the malleable foot soldier of the tyrant. G.K. Chesterton speaks of this man in his work, Heretics, quote, When he drops one doctrine after another in refined skepticism, when he declines to tie himself to a system, when he says that he has outgrown definitions, when he says that he disbelieves in finality, when in his own imagination he sits as God, holding no form of creed but contemplating all, 
then he is by that very process sinking slowly backwards into the vagueness of the vagrant animals and the unconsciousness of the grass. Trees have no dogmas. Turnips are singularly broad-minded. If then, I repeat, there is to be mental advance, it must be mental advance in the construction of a definite philosophy of life. And that philosophy of life must be right and the other philosophies wrong. So we are often told, do what is right. What you feel is right. What you think is right. But before we can do, our presupposition must ask the question, what is right? What is the objective standard that universally applies right and wrong? This is our presupposition, our bias that answers the why before we can act out the what. Our virtues, our values, our standard of right and wrong cannot be presupposed by the individual experience or subjective feelings of each person. This is the current state of our society, and it is erroneous. These values must be objective, and they must be universally applied to everyone. So we don't feel what is right or even think what is right. We can only stand upon what we know to be right. Everything that is not based upon this knowledge is wrong. There is this serious idea within the thought process of today where one speaks of their core beliefs, their right and wrong, and they can say, well, I may be right or you may be right. My mind can be easily changed. What an empty and shallow value system. A relativistic morality that aimlessly changes and reforms based upon the thoughts and feelings of men destroys the very concept of virtue to begin with. Chesterton further speaks of this in Heretics as he references his opponents. He says, quote, No man ought to write at all or even to speak at all unless he thinks that he is in truth in the other man in error. In similar style, I hold that I am dogmatic and right, while Mr. Shaw is dogmatic and wrong, unquote. To deny dogma is to deny conviction. It is to deny any sense of dedication to your belief system and process of thought. So we must ask, how do we know what we know? What is the nature of truth? We must presuppose its nature if we are to know what we know. Before you can claim objectivity, you must define it by that which presupposes it, what sets it in its place. These presuppositions form a systematic view of the world, a worldview, a religion. And what we must understand is everything is religious. The separation of religion from politics, philosophy, and the institutions that govern society is a lie. It all stems from religion, from a worldview. G.K. makes this point when he said, quote, religion is exactly the thing which cannot be left out because it includes everything, unquote. Separating the concept of religion from everything else is incoherent and intellectually dishonest. 
Now we must stop and define our terms if we are to continue a coherent conversation. And religion is one of those words that everyone knows but has difficulty finding an objective definition. But for today, when we speak of religion, we know it to be a systematic view of existence. It is, in essence, a worldview. Many define it by saying it has to point to a supernatural power or entity. But that is simply a religion that presupposes a supernatural ontology. Now, we're going to speak further about this in a bit, but what I'm trying to say is that most believe religion is a systematic view that says our being stems from a force outside of nature. But that is not the only religion. Secular humanism is clearly religious. There are systematic views of existence that are clearly based off godless assumptions. As a Christian, you can constantly hear the opposition demand that we keep our religion out of the conversation when speaking about any topic that applies to all of society. I find it to be a ridiculous notion that I, because I adhere to the one true religion, that of Christ, must set aside my most deeply held beliefs in the public square because they presuppose a supernatural creator of the cosmos. How preposterous that I be forbidden to articulate my political viewpoint all the way back to the presuppositions of the biblical worldview. I argue my worldview is the only coherent worldview that can govern how we live because it is the only worldview that can properly discern objective reality. So don't tell me I can't have an opinion on societal matters or morals or law or politics because I articulate the truth according to the sovereign God who reveals it. Most of the postmodern age that adhered to the humanist zeitgeist could not honestly articulate the presuppositions of their systematic belief system. They can sit there and they can bark their political viewpoints, right? They sit there and shout in the public square what they believe in, but they could not answer the questions that we would ask as far as how they obtain those beliefs, the why behind those beliefs. And I refuse to be silent simply because I can. The religion of humanism presupposes a dichotomy between faith and reason. It is a false dichotomy. Our boy G.K. Chesterton, he stresses this when he says, quote, reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all, unquote. It is an act of faith to believe what you reason abstractly in your mind is truly acted out in an objective reality. Everyone practices a level of faith whether they want to admit it or not. This is an objective truth despite what people subjectively feel. This bears itself to the question of the one and the many. The universal and the particular, the great metaphysical questions that brought about the very discipline of philosophy. My good friend Corey and his wife courageously founded a Christ-centered school in my area. And before they did, he wrote a visionary statement for the school. He never published it, but he has allowed me to quote from it because he articulates this far better than I ever could. Quote, this problem of reconciling the finite and the infinite, the discrete and the continuous, 
temporal chance in abstract ideas, material particulars in rational forms, fact and meaning, time and eternity, being and becoming, etc., is called the problem of the one and the many. It is the intellectual dilemma that gave rise to the discipline of philosophy, which pursues the unity of knowledge of reality that lies behind value judgments of what is true, good, and beautiful. The Apostle Paul warns us not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. In other words, without revelation, our two ways of knowing things through reason, which is the one, and experience, which is the many, cannot be trusted to cohere through any metaphysical scheme devised by the likes of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, or any of their philosophical successors. Only through the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily can we traverse such a chasm. The philosophical enigma that is the problem of the one and the many, which our most brilliant minds have chronically toiled in vain to overcome for centuries, what was answered for us 2,000 years ago is a side note by the God who is one and three, the indispensable authority and reference point for all human reasoning. In Jesus Christ, the God-man, we find sufficient justification for the assumption that the mind's perception of the rational and the body's experience of the real are equally ultimate and mutually affirming. In other words, ideas formulated in the mind can be verified through practical experimentation, and observations about reality can be comprehended as unified, intelligible concepts. This is the learning process. And since only the triune God of the Bible can account for its reliability, he is revealed at every point in the process. Unquote. Faith must precede reason if we are to properly orient ourselves to reality. That which we presuppose must be the foundational driving force that undergirds our logic. So everyone, in some way, practices a level of faith, even if it is simply the faith that what they reason has relation to the objective reality around them. But it is the Christian faith, faith in the one true God, that can properly answer these pivotal questions because it is the way of truth. We hold as Christians that we can properly reason because we have faith in a triune God who is sovereign who providentially governs the universe, and thus there is an objective reality firmly in place from which we can reason. We know that we serve a God whose ways are higher than ours, that there is no way as finite beings we can exhaustively penetrate the infinite. And so we have faith that there is harmony between the two wills of God, between the decree and the command, and between the sovereign will of God and the volition of man. For it is the sovereignty of God that gives man's will any sense of meaning. If the cosmos were governed by chance, nothing would have meaning. We have faith because the triune God, who is infinite in being, chose in his will to reveal this much to us. And so by faith we trust in that will. By faith we can properly perceive reality and reason correctly.
In fact, Christians are the only ones who can truly reason correctly. For we, in the words of Paul, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. From Paul's same letter to the Corinthians, he says this, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Lord reveals to us the truth, and by the Spirit we discern it. But ultimately, the quest of divine knowledge is in humble submission to the fact that the foundation of our existence is a mystery that cannot be fully comprehended. The mysteries of God are the presupposed framework that make logic and reason function. The mysteries of the secret will and the revealed will, of a sovereign God and his volitional creature, of an eternal plan firmly set in place being played out along the temporal timeline within a fallen creation. These mysteries are steadfast, true, immovable, unchanging, outside the realm of the human reason. They are the truths that allow human reasoning to have any meaningful function at all. So we cannot logically determine with human reasoning mysteries that transcend logic and are the creating forces of logic. The triune God created logic and all things from nothing. By faith, I trust that my actions here and now have meaning because of the two wills of God working in harmony. I have faith that what I do matters because a sovereign God decrees that which will take place and so gives it meaning and value. And so anyone who argues for any sort of worldview, any set of universal standards or values to apply to all of reality, subscribe to some level of faith. Even the humanist and the atheist and the godless. In fact, they are marred images of true faith. For common grace reveals that there must be a universal to give particulars meaning, but for the unbeliever, the pagan philosopher or humanist thinker, they put their faith in false universals according to their fallen reasoning. Nonetheless, today we are currently dealing with a paradigm that presupposes no universals. It is literal madness. So I reject the false dichotomy between faith and reason. In fact, I challenge, based upon the reasoning just stated, that the Christian has the only coherent view of the world because it is the true view of the world. I challenge any secularist to give a coherent explanation for all things. It collapses on its face because it is based on false, subjective, illogical presuppositions. It is a postmodern soup sandwich. So all worldviews or religions or systematic belief systems, you can pick your term, they all on some level have a practicing faith, regardless of their supernatural or natural assumed bias. We're going to make a couple points about worldview regarding those that adhere to a worldview. 
We must understand the nature of a worldview's followers if we are truly if we are to truly understand the full implications of the belief system. For a worldview or religion to be of any worth, it must be applied. It must be sincerely and genuinely followed and propagated by its adherents. Ideas to be anything must not simply reside in the abstract. The universals must be applied in the particulars. Ideas must be experienced in physical reality to have any value. Let us look to scripture to firmly establish this point from the first chapter of James. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Holy Spirit, through our church father James, reveals to us this objective truth. Your beliefs are dead if you do not practice them. Your abstractions are worthless if you do not exercise them in reality. The Greek word for religion in James is threskaya. Thayer's lexicon describes the origin of this word from certain ancient texts as indicating a fear of the gods, but its practical use relates to religious worship, especially the external worship that consists in ceremonies, but it indicates a religious discipline. James reveals to the adherents of the Christian worldview that the core of our outward expression of faith is to care for those who can't care for themselves and to be holy. In essence, this is the fulfillment of the law, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. This is the driving force of our ideas executed in reality. And we work to guide every human institution towards this end to the glory of God in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Anything less then this is a lack of discipline. But praise be to God that those who are his are by grace being sanctified, growing day by day, being renewed day by day as they progress in religious discipline. But let us get back to our overarching point of the matter. Regardless of the worldview, those with a totalizing worldview, the truly religious, are devoted and we can look at examples in recent history as recent as the 20th century. And it is honestly where the Christian church in Western civilization has really been lacking. You have obviously had the devoted amongst us. Those who by God's grace 
have been walking deeply in that path of discipline and doing good work. But then you have this big bloated mess that is the church. And what if you had to sum it up, it is filled with people who are not devoted, truly devoted in, to their beliefs. And therefore, they compromise and compromise and compromise. And they continue that path, walking deeper and deeper into a pit that they cannot climb out of, completely walking away from their belief system. We can see in the 20th century, I mean, look at the look at the Marxist and how it propagated into, into Leninist Marxism and the devotion of the communist in propagating their worldview, their world revolution, and how it spread like fire across the nations. It's godless. It is, uh, it is wrong, according to God's truth, but you still have to credit them for their devotion. And honestly, we, as followers of Christ, can take a lesson from their book. Are we as devoted as the communists to their cause? For we follow the one true God. We are led by his very presence. If anyone should reveal true devotion, it is the follower of the way. But we must understand that human institutions are always ran by the religious with those who are devoted to a totalizing worldview. Glenn Martin discusses the question that must be answered by a worldview. And he makes this pivotal point about life in these questions. Quote, I would like to emphasize that each one of us answers the primary questions of God, man, and the cosmos. The significance of worldviews applies not only to nations and civilizations, but to every single person who lives. Each person either consciously raises and answers these questions for himself or herself, or allows, if only by default, someone else to answer them for him or her. They may not raise them in the philosophical terms we have used, but they raise the questions. This is to recognize that every single person, there never has been and there never will be an exception in this age, is either a leader or is led. Each one of us is either influential or influenced. End quote. This brings us back to Schaefer's point about the elite in our introduction. They seek to lead those who surrender their personal responsibility to answer the pivotal questions about life themselves. The elite convince the populace to live for the shallow values of personal comfort and peace, and they convince them to sacrifice every other ideal for the sake of these values. While the populace of the postmodern thought process convince themselves that they can bend objective reality to their subjective values to fulfill their own personal peace and comfort, they fail to understand that there is an elite class of people who govern the institutions according to a devoted pursuit of a hard and fast worldview. In the modern West, it is obviously the dialectical worldview of the likes of Hegel and Marx. Those in power proselytize society to the postmodern thought process because society will inevitably be dependent upon a top-down bureaucratic power structure. 
Consequently, society will be compliant and controllable. The populace becomes a subjective soup where there is a complete separation of the universal from the particular, the abstract from reality. The proliferation of hedonism and nihilism, the worship of self, while being completely controlled by an elite that is working towards a utopia according to the dialectical process. The people are convinced they are progressing as they break the bonds of the past, but they fail to realize the madness of moral relativism. G.K. Chesterton once again makes this point in his work, Heretics. Quote, the vice of the modern notion of mental progress is that it is always something concerned with the breaking of bonds, the effacing of boundaries, the casting away of dogmas. But there, but if there be such a thing as mental growth, it must mean the growth into more and more definite convictions, into more and more dogmas. Unquote. Those that truly progress and grow are those that are further convicted by objective values based upon a steadfast worldview. Postmodernism has only caused society to fall further into chaos, but the elite take great joy in this, as they see it as a part of the process towards their utopia, a utopia established by their iron fist. We cannot settle for this. We cannot submit to this paradigm of darkness, this prevailing worldview of tyranny and godless assumptions. In Christ we conquer, and in Christ we must further understand the questions that must be answered by a worldview. And consequently, we must know the answers the God of truth provides. We must know why we must fight. Now, before we begin, I want to make something clear and give credit to where it is due. I'm going to systematically tackle the idea of worldview. According to a book that first brought this way of thinking to my attention and opened up my eyes to the things I knew, I knew them as the common theologian that I am, as I studied the Word of God, I knew these truths, but they were things that I could not effectively articulate until I read this book. This book really refined the truth I already knew and my ability to articulate it. The book was written by the late Dr. Glenn R. Martin, and the book is titled Prevailing Worldviews of Western Society Since 1500. Now, I've learned much since first reading this book. You know, I've, I've, I've got it into Abraham Kuyper's sphere sovereignty. I've been, I've been into Cornelius Van Til. I've been along this path with God, but it was this book that really began an extensive journey for me. So moving forward, I will be quoting and paraphrasing extensively from this book. And needless to say, I, I thank the Lord for the grace he gave to Dr. Martin and his ability to articulate our existence in such a way. Here we go. First, we must understand that a worldview, <clears throat> it's got to be totalizing and lasting. 
Worldview must provide durable answers to pivotal questions about life that determine how we are to live. The answers to these questions must be universally applied to all of society, and the answers to these questions must have sufficient durability. In our fast-paced society of ever-evolving fads and ideas, this is almost foreign. But it is ridiculously unrealistic and dangerous to think we can allegedly evolve at a rapid rate in the way we think because the way we think has lasting consequences when we determine how we govern ourselves as a people. Our boy GK, he hits us again with a good one from his work Orthodoxy. Quote, An imbecile habit has arisen in modern controversy of saying, that such and such a creed can be held in one age, but cannot be held in another. Some dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century, but it is not credible in the 20th. You might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays, but cannot be believed on Tuesdays, unquote. I mean, when it's really articulated that way, it's, it's hard to grasp this. You hear people all the time, well, that was okay to believe in 800 years ago, but not today. What? Like what? Our right and wrong can suddenly change? You know, so the question of worldview cannot be one that is within the context of asking whether one thought process was good, true or beautiful in one century versus another. Worldview answers questions that transcend the historical timeline. They are meant to provide answers to pivotal questions that apply to the entire timeline of history, eternity. So the questions. A worldview must be composed of three basic elements, which are in essence answers to three pivotal questions. These are questions that every person attempts to answer or at least ponders. But worldview must provide lasting answers to these questions. Most of our age provides empty and incoherent responses to these questions. And it honestly appears most are indifferent to the desire to even fully comprehend our existence. Most, in the words of Dr. Martin, quote, operate fragmentally on the basis of contradictory bits and pieces, unquote. They take from their experience values given to them from different sources like family, media, education, and they form a conglomerate of ideas they call a value system. But if we have an honest conversation, if we look deeper into these incoherent value systems, most cannot answer the deeper questions. And frankly, most don't want to. Either because of total depravity, their pride does not want to conceive that they may be wrong, they refuse to answer, or they are just apathetic towards the necessity to answer these questions. The shallow values of personal peace and comfort supersede any need. What I mean about deeper questions, for example, if we were to have a conversation about an issue, right? A moral concept, a right versus a wrong. One might say to me, well, this certain thing cannot be tolerated because it is wrong. Or we must institute this certain policy because it is right. I would proceed to ask the deeper question. What is the objective standard you use to determine what is wrong versus what is right? And many Answers I have heard would include something like, well, it is clear from experience that this is wrong or right. Or I've heard some say, well, the majority of people view this as wrong or right, and thus there is our standard. 
<laughs> but if we think about this, right? We see clearly, you know, if we think about these answers, they are very difficult to fully accept. One presupposes that personal experience determines what is right. But then that would essentially mean every individual person is entitled to their own moral code and nothing can be universally applied. And so it destroys the very concept of morality or right versus wrong because it cannot be universally applied. The other says the majority opinion determines what is moral. Okay. All right. The majority of what? The majority within a village, a city, a nation, globally? If the majority determines that rape is morally acceptable, does that mean rape is now morally acceptable? Another simple example of looking deeper would be the discussion around truth. Now, we'll discuss this more deeply in a moment, but quickly, one might say, well, this is right because it is true. The deeper question asks, what is truth? What determines what is true? How do we know what we know? So like we said, there are three questions. Dr. Martin considers the first two questions to be the primary questions. And consequently, the answer to the third question flows from the answers to the first two. The first primary question is the cosmological question. And it asks, what is the origin, nature, and destiny of the cosmos? Cosmos refers to everything that exists. Everything. This is the most important question. The determinant that helps us perceive the metaphysics of reality and everything contained within. The second primary question refers to mankind. And it asks, what is the origin, nature, role, and destiny of man? Dr. Martin says that it is sometimes referred to as the anthropological question, but it is the question of our nature. Are we basically free or determined? Are we good or evil? Are we rational, intuitive, or none of the above? In order to answer the two primary questions, we must answer four subsidiary philosophical questions. The answers to these four questions will provide the framework to properly answer the questions relating to the cosmos and to man. Dr. Martin, he makes this point about these questions, quote, Everyone who has lived, is living, or will live in this age has raised these questions. Not a person has failed to ask them at one time or another during the course of this life. Who has not asked, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how do I know? Unquote. So these are the basic philosophical questions of what are called ontology, epistemology, axiology, and tele teleology. I know. Like I said, I'm just a common dude. I have difficulty pronouncing them all, but it's important. It's important we know these things. They are derived from the Greek words being, knowing, worth, and destiny. So you have ontology, right? That of being, epistemology, that of knowing, axiology, that of worth, and teleology, that of destiny. So the first question of ontology or being asks the question, who am I? 
and how do we exist? It is our starting point, our most basic question about ourselves, referring to where we come from and where did we originate? There are many possible answers, but most can be divided into two categories, a supernatural ontology or a natural ontology. From Dr. Martin, quote, super simply means above. So supernatural causation means that some power, force, or agency outside of, greater than, above, beyond, outside of the visible or seen world, including man, brought everything into being that exists, unquote. So in essence, some, some force that is outside of the physical realm. So a, a God or an energy force, whatever we may conceive of, something that is supernatural, that is above, greater than, or outside of the natural, created everything that exists. The alternative is a natural ontology, which is the idea that some force or entity that is yet to be discovered by us within our natural physical realm brought about the existence of all things. The second question is the epistemological question, which asks, how do we know what we know? It is, in essence, the nature of truth, how we determine truth, the very idea or concept of truth. Dr. Martin asserts that of all the possibilities, there are only three presupposed natures of truth, that ultimately we know what we know on the basis of revelation, reason, or intuition. Revelation says that it can be basically assumed that truth is revealed to us by an authoritative force that is outside of man, that discloses what is true. A prime example is the biblical Christian worldview. God, being outside of man, revealed to man truth through the special revelation of the written word, through the Bible, and the general revelation of the created order. Reason presupposes that man can know what he knows simply by exercising his own intellect. Autonomous human thought can be used to ultimately determine truth. An example of this is the worldview of Enlightenment rationalism. Now, let's be clear. This is not to say that only rationalism presupposes man to be a rational creature. What rationalism does is it holds up the human intellect as supreme, the transcendent quality of man that determines everything. Biblical epistemology reveals that man is a rational creature, for in order for man to communicate with God, he must be rational. But the rational nature of man is not exalted above the actual nature of truth that we ultimately know according to God's revelation. Nonetheless, the final presupposed nature of truth is that of intuition. The idea that knowledge is residing within man according to his ontological character. Man knows because he is. This is the idea that the divine resides within man. The concept of God is that of an energy which flows through mankind. Therefore, man holds within him the divine, and he knows what he knows because he exists. This is the concept of intuition. You still with me? We got two down. The third question is the axiological question, which asks, what, if anything, is the ultimate value? Dr. Martin breaks this down into three following categories, theistic, humanistic, and materialistic axiology. 
The first would hold that the supernatural, God, the theos, that which is beyond man, has the ultimate value. The next is what you think. Humanity is of ultimate value. And the third is the matter, or I'm sorry, and the third is that matter, right? Material is of ultimate value. This question is not one I gave much weight to recently. And I'm not going to digress into a conversation now, but I spoke about this extensively in a previous podcast. Uh, It's one of my war song meditation episodes, and it's on the nature of worship. It speaks a lot to axiology of the Christian faith. So check that out. Deals a lot with um, value and worship. But finally, my friends, we got to hit this last subsidiary question that helps us answer the two primary questions. And it is the question of destiny. And it asks, where are we going? Are we even going anywhere? Is our direction in time for a purpose? One example is the biblical presupposition that the kingdom of God is in control of and moving time in a direction for a purpose according to the will of God. Another example would be that based upon the natural ontology, that there is a yet-to-be-discovered natural force moving our existence into a specific direction for a specific purpose. Even the current dialectical paradigm, that of Hegel and Marx, that's propped up ideologies uh, like communism are a prime example. The dialectical process, it's going to continue until suddenly it blooms into a utopian flower that will proceed forever. So these four questions, that of being, knowing, value, and destiny, provide the presuppositional framework to answer the questions of the cosmos and of man. The lasting answers to these two primary questions then give us the ability to answer the third question, which is, in essence, how then shall we live? This is what Dr. Martin refers to as the institutional structure and procedure of the worldview. A worldview cannot be in a vacuum. It cannot reside simply in the abstract. It must have physical consequences and determinants. According to how we view our existence, we must determine how we live within every sphere of life. What is the role and nature of family, of education, of religious institutions and government, of the market and economy? What is the role and purpose of media, of the arts and sciences, of international politics, and the relationships between nation states? Just as our personal view of life, our values and ideas determine how we live as individuals, so should they determine how we live as a people. Worldview determines that purpose and direction of human institutions, and it determines the culture of a people. Either the people will be led or they will lead in this endeavor. This, my friends, is the war of ideas, the conflict of worldviews, the cataclysmic clash between the spiritual forces of light and dark, between the sovereign God and the rebel that is expressed in the physical realm of our objective reality. This is how we must think so that we know why we must fight and consequently how we must fight. We will continue our conversation of worldview in future episodes by tackling
the four philosophical questions according to the Christian worldview. We will thus understand who we truly are, how we can truly know, what is truly valuable, and where we are truly going. The triune God is the creator of all things. He is the revealer of truth. He is the transcendent value, and he has determined the destiny of the cosmos that is being executed in history. He has redeemed for himself through Christ a special people who he uses to advance his kingdom and conquer. Therefore, our hope is grounded. It is sure, and we can rejoice knowing what we do here and now. And the fight we engage in has meaning. It has value. It has purpose. So remain steadfast, my friends. Be strong in the Lord. Semper fortis. Know why you must fight and do what God has called you to do. Fight.